Hello, Paul Scott here with my weekly roundup of the Small Cap Valley reports on Stockopedia. Uh, nice time to just generally on a Saturday morning have a think about the week that's gone by and to flag up some of the highlights of the week to you. Um, I'm not tipping anything. It really got on my nerves when somebody on Twitter referred to me as a tipster and that my tips are moving prices, share prices. This is complete nonsense. I write a daily report with Graham Neary on Stockopedia on the day's trading updates and results announcements of small caps. So of course the share prices move because it's results day or trading update day and that's the day when prices move so it's nothing to do with me and I'm not tipping anything we're just giving uh, a review of the trading updates and results statements and then uh, just giving our personal opinions nothing more nothing less so I really uh, I didn't think I needed to emphasize that after doing this for 10 years but clearly I do need to regularly remind people anyway getting back on track then so it feels like the market's tentatively uh, coming alive again in small caps. I mean, I don't know what the market overall will do. I never know. It's, you know, you can have a hunch about it. It feels to me we're probably over the worst, but I look at things on a case-by-case basis, individual companies, and I'm seeing a lot of companies putting out pretty good updates in line or even ahead of expectations updates that have halved or more in price. Uh, and, and so the, the, it's fertile ground, I think, now for people who are patient and uh, have got the balls to be able to uh, tough out a, a bear market like this. So uh, as always, um, I don't know what will happen, but I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. The question is, though, whether with these rebounds we're seeing in lots of small caps at the moment over the last few weeks, will they stick or will people sell into them? That as yet we don't know. Now, I had an interesting chat this week, actually, with the CEO of uh, one of the investment bank stroke brokers in the city. He reached out to me after I repeatedly repeatedly moan about um, lack of access for private investors to broker research notes, which doesn't seem fair to me, given that the, the analysts get privileged access to companies and are obviously going to be given a lot more colour on things than uh, everybody else. Uh, and yet they then restrict the uh, the publication of those notes partly for regulatory reasons but to paying customers and favoured uh, clients of the brokers. Now that seems wrong to me. Well anyway, I had a really good chat with the CEO. It was off the record so I'm, I'm not going to say which firm it was. There are quite a lot of them. But he was saying that the, the main, he said they would love to get more of their research out to private investors and they do put out a fair bit on research tree already. But he said the problem is MIFID has caused all these issues because MIFID, the regulatory framework if you uh, recall, was changed a couple of years ago I think uh, that, that stopped the budget bundling up of research with fees, uh, all-inclusive, for institutions. They had to separate it out, which um, seems really a totally pointless bit of unnecessary regulation to add to the huge mound of unnecessary and ineffective regulation. Uh, there doesn't seem any particular reason, valid reason, for doing that. But what it's meant is that now they have to obviously charge their institutions and high net worths for access to research so so they can't then give it away free can they because then the institutions would stop paying so they're sort of walking a tightrope really and compromising by putting one pe- you know the front page of their updates up on research tree which is a fabulous research uh, uh, tool i pay the 25 pounds a month for it very gladly i think it's it's very cheap at that price and you know people shouldn't bulk at 
paying, uh, uh, rewarding companies that put out great information and great um, uh, views and so on and data, you know, you should pay for it. Uh, not expect to get everything free, in my opinion, otherwise it'll go away. So, um, in the long run. But anyway, Research Tree is fantastic. So you do get one-page notes on there often, which have uh, just just give you the summary of their view and, and the latest forecasts in a, in a simplified table. And for me, that is incredibly useful and helps me so much when I'm writing up my um, Small Cap Valley reports. So thanks again to Research Tree, but also to this investment bank who said, you know, they're not trying to hide this stuff from, from private investors. They want us to see it. They do recognise that we're we're the people that create the liquidity in the market. So, um, but it is the regulatory issue and the fees that they charge to the institutions, which is the main reason that they have to at least partially restrict what we can get access to. I mean, I did say to him, you do realise, don't you, there's a well-developed network amongst private investors who just get hold of a note illicitly and then email it around to all their mates. So the stuff gets out there anyway. Uh, I have a strict policy of never doing that myself because... Um, I want to protect the sources of information, so people who send me broker notes, uh, you know, I don't want to potentially uh, drop them in it by because they come watermarked, don't they, with the person's name on it, uh, and it takes too much time to redact it. So I know, you know, please don't ever ask me to forward you any broker notes because I, I don't do that. Okay, uh, so that was an interesting chat. Um, now, another little interesting item that came up, interest income on cash deposits. Now that we've got base rates rising, um, there are several, it's worth looking out for companies that can, uh, that have large client deposits on their balance sheet or off balance sheet, uh, but still uh, they can earn the interest from them. Now, this came up with two companies recently, Appreciate, APP, and Foxton's, F-O-X-T, which I looked at last week, both have over £100 million in client funds that are segregated that they can now start earning interest on. So that could provide upside to um, to earnings, particularly if interest rates go up again. I think another half percent rise is forecast for the UK imminently, obviously following on from America. What else? General points. Um, oh, it's just so difficult to value companies at the moment, isn't it? I think the market is getting a lot of valuations wrong at the moment because people are fixated with current year earnings and P.E. ratios. Now, obviously, in particularly cyclical companies, this year and maybe next year could have a bit of an earnings recession. So you could see a big drop in um, forecasts, which we're seeing uh, lots and lots and lots of companies are now uh, downgrading expectations, which really they should have done already by now, because it's obvious if you're a cyclical business, you're facing uh, pressure on consumer disposable income, and you're facing big uh, rising costs, especially wages, but also utilities and so on, ending of um, the furlough and the business rates and all the other government support schemes, which uh, is still coming through on a lot of P&L accounts, particularly hospitality and retail. The accounts that are being published now for last year or overlapping into spring of this year are, having, are still having a substantial benefit from uh, business rates relief. So that's why some of the forecasts are lower for 2023. Um, but anyway, how on earth do we value these things? So I think there are opportunities where the market has derated something in, in terms of uh, lowered the earnings forecast, maybe by half or even more than half, but also derated the PE. So put it on a you know PE of seven or eight. We're now seeing for a lot of fundamentally good companies, on and that multiple is being applied to lower uh, earnings forecasts. So put that together, 
And, you know, you've got share prices down two-thirds in some cases. But I think this, this presents a terrific opportunity. Because, of course, earnings are going to recover for good companies. It might take a couple of years, two, three years, for companies to rebuild margins again. Um, but you've got inflation itself makes the business bigger. So you're starting to see figures coming in now where you're seeing revenue growth. And you think, oh, that's strange. I thought this was a mature company. But of course, it's because of inflation. If they're able to put their prices up, and we've been saying for the last year in the small cap value reports that pricing power is everything in an inflationary environment. And um, so this is starting to create uh, the, the, I wouldn't say the illusion, but it is, it is growth uh, in company accounts, not necessarily in profits yet. You know, profits might be dropping, but revenues are rising, and then they can subsequently rebuild margins in future years. Now, of course, but share prices have nominally gone down, often a half or two thirds. So, at some point, there's, there could well be a really, really uh, good bull run. I think as it dawns on people that actually, you know, share prices are nominal too. So, you could argue they shouldn't be going down. Inflation means that the company's accounts are getting bigger. Uh, once earnings recover. So I think this is a very interesting time, and really it's an education for all of us, because there can't be many people, well, you'd have to be, what, in your 70s or so, to have really been an experienced, well, 70s or 80s or more, to have been an experienced investor during a sustained period of, of high inflation. I mean, I can remember the high inflation of the 70s and 80s, but I was just a, a teenager, really. So... Um, Okay. Uh, oh, another point. These are just the points I jot, jot, jot down during the week. Good companies are really cheap in some cases now. So why are people looking at the dross? There's no reason to look at real rubbish, rubbish speculative shares, in my view, when you can buy great quality things um, at a discount to what I would say their long-term fundamental value is. So I'm really focusing on, on quality uh, at the moment. Oh, dear, my screen's just gone off. Ah, good, it's still recording. Okay, um... Uh, do, 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 do. Share prices are not correct valuations. Oh, yeah, this is just, again, we all know this. It's just a reminder. I see a lot of people commenting on um, Stockopedia and elsewhere saying, oh, well, but the results were good. Why has the share price dropped 10% in the last two days? It's just sentiment. A lot of it is just sentiment. And it's, I think, people also factoring in potential downside from a recession, uh, or if they see something slightly wobbly in the outlook comment, but you know they just hit the sell button. But a lot of the small caps in particular, they move about on such little volume that I think it's really important to remember that the the market price is absolutely not the logical correct valuation of that business. It's just the current balance of buyers and sellers, and the vast majority of the share register are not doing anything, and neither buyers nor sellers. So. Share prices are definitely not correct valuations a lot of the time. Over the very long term, they will be generally, but obviously, you know, you can have completely irrational mispricings of many shares for years on end before they eventually collapse, for example. Um, so I think that's worth bearing in mind. Uh, oh, the US went into technical recession this week, I believe, two quarters of negative growth. Although I would say on that that GDP measurements are quite rough and ready and they're very often revised a lot. I can remember, I think it was in, um, oh, was it in the middle of the Cameron government, David Cameron's government, 2012 to 13, 14, something like that. 
Ed Balls with his beetroot face uh, in in the House of Commons. His his autobiography actually is excellent. Ed Balls really worth reading, particularly how he dealt with uh, speech impediment and so on. Uh, really, really recommend uh, that book. I can't remember what it's what it's what it's called, um, but it's it's worth something about speaking out loud or something like that. It's a really good book. Anyway, um, he would um, he used to go bright red when he was ever uh, questioning David Cameron out of stress, anxiety, but good for him for powering through. And he used to do all these hand gestures, didn't he, signifying double dip recession. And anyway, it all turned out to be nonsense because the subsequently revised GDP numbers showed there hadn't been a double dip. So that's worth bearing in mind with GDP. The other thing is in high inflation. Remember, GDP numbers are after inflation. So if you've got inflation of 9% and the economy is flatlining, that actually means the economy is growing by 9%, which ain't bad. It's just um, so a recession of, say, half a percent when you've got... 9% 9% inflation means the economy is actually nominally 8.5% bigger. So, um, logically, the share prices should be going up as well. Um, but as, 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 as we know, the reason that isn't happening is because of uh, earnings being squeezed in the short term. Uh, now, yeah, in terms of... The, so I think companies at the moment are separating out into share prices that are falling because the company fundamentals are deteriorating. Something's going wrong, particularly for cyclical companies and lower quality companies. So you look at the share price and you think, yeah, that makes sense. And it's even not cheap, even though it's dropped by two-thirds or three-quarters, which we've reported on quite a few like that this week. But you've got others that have fallen by a similar amount. And I'm thinking here particularly in two of my long-term holdings in my SIP are Beaks Financial, BKS, and Cambridge Cognition, COG, both of which are long-term holds for me. I've held them for several years, and I'm not interested in the slightest in what the share price is doing, so um, I just ignore it. And um, what's interesting in both of those cases, they're good examples of shares that have just been pulled down by uh, lack of liquidity, uh, a few nervous sellers, um, and the share price falls look completely spurious, certainly with Cambridge Cognition, because it's put out several really nice updates recently, and I still think that's a cracking little business. Profitable now, doesn't need to raise cash, winning uh, good contracts, and of course, uh, as it's addressing an unmet need in the pharmaceutical sector, in a niche that it has more or less to itself, it's online cognitive testing, of which the data running back decades, which makes them the market leader. So it's got big barriers to entry, high margins, around 80%. Uh, it serves all of the the world's top 20 biggest pharmaceutical companies. Cambridge Cognition, I think, is a lovely little business, but the share price goes all over the place, so it's not for the faint-hearted. But the key point is, the share price volatility and these wild gyrations is not being driven by facts and figures. It's just market sentiment and an illiquid share. And I know naked trader um, uh, Robbie Burns uh, popped, uh, who I've got a lot of time for. I think he's a very, very shrewd guy. He put up um, more of a trader than an investor, although he does both, I think, looking at his spreadsheet on his website um, a very keen proponent of, of stop losses, which I generally, well, I'd never use on individual shares. Um, but actually, you know, maybe I should think again about that. Um, he, he put up 
a post saying if you use stop losses, you know, you would have got out and avoided the worst of this bear market. And he's got a point, hasn't he? But the trouble is, you'd also get stopped out of things continuously um, at other times, just through normal volatility. Most of my big winners have been through pretty substantial drawdowns on the way to being five or ten or twenty or thirty baggers. So if I'd had, if I'd used stop losses, I would have missed the big gains. So it's. It's an ongoing debate, isn't it? I think we all have to just to do whatever we're comfortable with. But I think I might actually take his advice on that and, and, and tentatively think about using my own sort of informal stop losses. I don't want a computer making decisions for me, but I think I might set up alerts so that if something's 20% down, I should really reassess it. Uh, so that was an interesting intervention. Thanks, Robbie. Um, sorry, this is taking much longer than I was expecting. This is meant to be briefer, but Cambridge Cognition, yeah, so uh, that's a good example of a spurious share price fall, where the chart is not telling you anything. It's just showing that a few nervous holders have um, bottled out. And the trouble is, with, again, with stop losses, on, particularly on small caps like Cambridge Cognition, you can't buy back in. If you want to buy, you know, if you... The most you can deal in Cambridge Cognition is normally 10,000 or 20,000 shares if you're lucky. And that's, you can only buy that amount if it's on a big down day. You know, you try buy, putting in an order to buy that when it started rising and you can forget it. You just can't get them. So it's all very well trying to time the market on illiquid shares. And I found this in March 2020 when I went on a big buying spree about a week before the market bottomed out. Um, a lot of my orders didn't get filled. Because the, the sellers were done. There were no more sellers there. So you look at the low points in the chart and you think, oh, I should start buying. It's actually very difficult to buy very often once the tide has turned. So um, another thing, final point on the general stuff. My inbox is just full every day of announcements about share buybacks. I can't remember seeing so many share buybacks in the smaller caps space. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. So it shows that a lot of companies have got surplus cash. Uh, I think it shows generally that they've uh, traded pretty well over the last few years, thanks obviously to a lot of the government support. But uh, it is interesting, I think, that a lot of small caps are in pretty rude health financially, and obviously we're flagging up and avoiding the ones that aren't. Okay, that was a lot longer than I expected. Rattling through the individual companies next. Right, Graham and I covered 38 companies this week in the Small Cap Valley Reports, which I think is a new record. So I'll only flag up a few of the most interesting ones. Monday, uh, equals, E-Q-L-S. The readers have been badgering me to look at this for a, a couple of weeks, and I think it's quite good. Uh, it does um, foreign, foreign exchange services, very low margin, competitive sector. But something good seems to be happening there. The business is performing really well. The valuation still looks uh, reasonable. So I think Equals looks quite good, worth a closer look. Uh, I don't hold it myself, and I'm not planning on buying any. Um, now, two, ch uh, two companies fired their CFOs on Monday, Card Factory and Naked Wine, C-A-R-D and W-I-N-E. Now, I really don't rate Naked Wine, I'm afraid. I think it's just been a bit of a, a story stock, doesn't make any money. Um, and these wine subscription services are struggling now. It's an obvious thing to cancel, isn't it? Although a lot of their customers are probably middle class who can afford to keep going with it. But so I don't know. But I think they were over-egged, these things. I don't think the opportunity is particularly good 
for wine subscription services. There are a lot of them about. I don't think there's much to differentiate them. Naked Wines claimed there was, but I don't believe it. Card Factory, I'm still on the fence on that one. Can't make up my mind. I understand the bull case. Um, uh, Cockney Rebel has been a, a strong supporter of it, and I think, you know, he makes some good points. That's another one with new management where there could be a turnaround, so maybe firing the CFO was about culture change. I don't know, but it makes me uneasy when CFOs um, leave unexpectedly. But anyway, Tuesday, we covered nine companies. Just a couple of highlights. S3, ticket is S-T-E-M, STEM. I really like this one. It's good value, staffing company, looks a good quality business, PE of about 10, really strong balance sheet. And they're saying the, you know, there's such a skills shortages in their particular niches, uh, science, technology, um, IT, and so on. Um, and uh, it's in a really nice niche, I think. Shares are cheap. I think that one's a good one. And it's it's performing really, really well. Positive updates. And, you know, we've got low unemployment and skills shortages. So staffing companies. It does the quite lucrative stuff. Contractors, but for sort of medium-term contracts, which means it's, it's, it's repeating revenue. And it's, it's quite good margins, actually, at S3. So um, they're not just putting in, you know, workers into food factories like, uh, for example, Staffline, which is ultra-low margin. I don't rate Staffline at all. So I think it, my sector pick is S3 and Robert Walters, RWA. Both very good, I think, if you think staffing uh, is going to remain reasonably buoyant. Now, Shoe Zone put out another positive update. They're coming uh, thick and fast this year. It's done really well, that share. Um, maybe the big uh, rise might have already been been had by now. Um, uh, interesting points for read across to other retailers and, and e-commerce businesses. They said that supply chains are beginning to ease and margins are actually improving. Now, that, I think, is very interesting, and I think you could see an autumn recovery in retail and e-commerce businesses because they're annualising against when the supply chain problems were at their worst last year. And do you remember, container shipment prices went up from $1,500 to $20,000. Well, they're coming down now. And, um, you know, supply chains are not fully recovered, but I think there's definite uh, signs for optimism with retailers whose products remain in demand because this autumn they'll actually be able to supply the product better, I think, and with a lower cost, which should absorb um, a lot of the margin pressure. So I think retail and e-commerce is probably my favourite sector at the moment. I think it's oversold. And Richard Crow, at Cockney Rebel, said the same thing in my interview with him as well last week. Reach, RCH, this is the former Trinity Mirror. Now, this is a complicated one. I, went, I really did a deep dive into the accounts. I totally get the thing that a lot of people think it's on a PE of three and therefore it's very cheap, blah, blah, blah. And they're right if the pension scheme problems don't... Um, don't turn out to be as bad as they are. That was my main area for investigation. And, you know, the current actuarial agreement is that they have to pay 52, I think it or 50 or 52 million pounds a year in cash um, into the pension scheme up to and including 2027. So that's about a 300 million liability. So the fact that the uh, accounting deficit is rapidly reducing, of course, doesn't have any bearing at all on the uh, deficit recovery payments, which are calculated on the much larger actuarial deficit. Now, we had a good debate about this, this, in, this in the reader comments. Some people think uh, with higher interest rates, the uh, pension deficit could disappear. 
Uh, I wouldn't be too sure about that, although it is a possible outcome, and I don't have a strong view either way because I'm not an actuary, so I, I don't, I just don't know. Um, but of course, you know, what happens if they do keep raising interest rates? The economy goes into recession, which it already has in the US, and the Fed then just starts cutting again. So you could see a return of zero interest rates, I think, um, after this current bout of tightening, because we've seen it before. That's happened, I think, twice when they've tried to tighten over the last 10 years. They've reversed course fairly quickly. And of course, the pension deficits that were melting away then come soaring back in again. So I'd be, I'm, I'm still a bit wary about pension companies with big pension schemes. Uh, Brighton Pier, P-I-E-R. I thought the results there looked good. That's interesting and well worth looking at. Nicely cash generative. Um, it's paying, paid down most of the debt. Uh, quite an interesting little uh, eclectic mix of uh, of leisure businesses, Brighton Pier. So I don't hold it, but I think it looks quite interesting. Now, Dot Digital, D-O-T-D, D-O-T-D. They did say they were ahead of expectations. This is the email software company. Um, but again, as I always say every time I look at the trading updates in this company, its customer numbers are still falling. So it's losing customers and not replacing them with new customers. The growth is all coming from increasing revenue per customer, deepening the relationships with the clients they've managed to keep and charging them more. Now, that to me is not high quality growth particularly. Um, I'm nervous about that. I think I will change my mind on Dot Digital if it starts delivering organic growth in customer numbers. But at the moment, it's not replacing its its churn in terms of customer numbers. But it's just squeezing more out of the existing customers. I don't think that's particularly good quality growth. So, DOTD Dot Digital is not for me. But I was impressed by the cash pile. It's just accumulating cash, and of course, at some point, it'll do do something with that. Maybe make an acquisition now that prices uh, are quite a bit lower, maybe, in tech. Now, Wednesday, uh, how are we doing for time? 25 minutes. Got five, four more minutes. PCIP, PCI PAL. I liked the upgrade here. They said um, they're ahead of expectations, a small software company. 60% organic revenue growth, 6-0. It's fabulous. Um, and it's generating revenue in the US as well, so it'll be getting a... A currency benefit uh, still loss making but it should reach break even next year I think it's got just enough cash but I wouldn't rule out the possibility of an, say 10% dilution from another placing I don't see that as a deal breaker the possible deal breaker is this patent infringement legal case that's ongoing and will obviously be could be quite costly uh, I don't really like situations where the, there's an ongoing um, legal case that could materially affect the value of the business, which is a pity because if it wasn't for that, I think this would be a lovely share to buy. So I'm thinking, I don't currently hold it, I have, have held it previously, but I'm toying with the idea of just dipping my toe in with a small position for PCIP. It looks as if the chart is, is bottoming out as well on that one over over, over this year to date. Excel Media. Now, Graham looked at this, but we both had a quick look, and I think we both think um, not a great quality company, to be honest, but XLM is the ticker. But I think we're both, we both feel it's at a valuation now. It might be a nice speculative punt, not a, a sort of core portfolio holding. Now, Thursday, we looked at 12 companies, which I think is a, a record. 
HOTC, which is Hotel Chocolat. Now, this is this has absolutely collapsed the share price here. Because the growth story of international expansion has, has has collapsed really. Now they confirmed, which they had already said nine days earlier, that they're going to make full provision against the intercompany loan that was owed to them by their Japanese joint venture. Uh, and that would incur about a £33 million write-off, which is fairly significant. Um, most of that's non-cash, though, remember. It's writing off a, a debit balance on the balance sheet rather than actually paying out cash. Although I think they're on the hook for about 5 or £6 million of loan guarantees, which would be cash going out of the business. Uh, but I think the HOTC can afford this um, this problem. I don't think it's an existential problem for the business as a whole. I think the shares are looking intriguing, but there were some RNSs of institutions dumping, uh, and that's the problem, isn't it? If you, I think you'll now, like with a lot of growth companies that go partially or substantially wrong, you then have to enter a period where there's a big change in the shareholder register from the original holders who paid top whack for it on the hopes of global domination. Uh, we're just throwing it out in despair and more value type investors or growth at reasonable price type investors uh, buying their shares and I did see a new institutional holding pop up at just over 5% I think it was an American hedge fund so I feel at about £1.34 Hotel Chocolat certainly isn't a bargain because it's only forecast to make about 5.6p earnings in 2023 so there are a lot of problems there with supply chain and cost escalation, and I think management have proven to be absolutely hopeless at capital allocation. I mean, why on earth they poured all this money into Japan? It was only 31 shops, so they've put, they're, they're, they're writing off a million pound each, and it was only a JV that apparently they own 20% of. So ugh, I don't know what they were thinking absolutely uh maybe there's more to it than i know but it sounds like it was a ridiculous strategy uh but they control the company over 50 percent, so they're not going anywhere uh, and they have created an amazing brand and a business that's very profitable in the uk so i'm i'm tempted by hotel chocolat i think it's intriguing but not a compelling buy yet but i think if it got below a quid i'd probably buy some now headlam carpets distributor h-e-a-d i really like this value share very positive an inline update for h1 despite uk revenues being down the interesting thing about it is there's a lot of self-help going on at headlam which there has been for several years now quite a big turnaround strategy change they're rolling out trade counters which are doing very well um, they're, they're, they're simplifying the distribution network because it was about 30 different businesses or something which were overlapping and you had product crisscrossing the UK going back and forth from different depots. They're just doing simple common sense things to make the business run better. And that's showing through in the figures because despite headwinds of lower revenue, which would mean significantly lower volumes, remember, because they're putting up prices, uh, so volumes would be down quite significantly, um, which means fewer variable costs as well, which helps. Um, but despite that, it managed to Headland managed to show an increase in H1 profits slightly and confirmed for the full year. I think the, the valuation is very good on Headlam, particularly because it's got over 100 million in freeholds on the balance sheet and it's generous with dividends and it has big dividend paying capacity. So that's a lovely long-term value share, I think, Headlam. Uh, INCE, I-N-C-E, I-N-C-E, complete disaster. We've been negative on this uh, 
a firm of lawyers and financial advisors for years because it was just floated with a terrible balance sheet. It did a really deeply discounted fundraising a few years ago that they sort of said was a one-off and they were stitched up by their brokers. Well, they've just done it again. Another fundraising at 58% discount, I think. I mean, this is real keep-the-lights-on stuff. Um, and most of the money looks to have uh, already gone through um, costs from a, a major cybersecurity incident. Uh, I wouldn't touch Inch with a barge pole. I think that the equity is worth nothing. Uh, it's got a terrible balance sheet with huge receivables, too much debt. Um, and it's one of these people businesses where they're, you know, you've just got that fundamental conflict of interest between the staff and, and outside shareholders. Um, which is why a lot of these listed legal firms haven't really done very well. So I wouldn't go near INTS, I think it's hopeless. Epwin, E-P-W-N, building products, solid update, good value, I think. Vino, now this is Virgin Wines, V-I-N-O. Um, it's dropped by two-thirds from the float price, which it's part of a large cohort of floats in 2021 particularly, but 2020 as well, where they floated, I think, opportunistically, on, a, on the, a, a, an online boom fueled mainly by the pandemic. They passed it off as structural growth, growth a lot of these companies and brokers, which gave them much higher valuations than they warranted. So loads of these shares have dropped by two-thirds or even more. I mean, God, look at Parsley Box. What a disaster that is. I, would, I wouldn't go near that either. That's a, a, a barge pole stock as well, which put out another profit warning this week. It's, I think Parsley Box is, is going to zero. It's hopeless. Anyway, Virgin Wines might surprise you to hear. I actually think this is fairly valued now. It's dropped by two-thirds since floating. The June 22 results came out last uh, this week on Thursday. I thought they were okay. Profits were d down a bit. I wish they'd show adjusted profit before tax, not EBITDA, because I, EBITDA is not real profit, and I then have to go to a broker note to look out what the real profits are. So c brokers, PRs, companies, please give us the adjusted profit figure. Give the EBITDA figure as well if you want, but we need proper profit. Private investors generally do not regard EBITDA as proper profits. Some do, some may do, I can't speak for everyone, but nearly everyone I know in the investing world wants to know the proper uh, uh, profit before tax and above all just give us an adjusted EPS number then we can immediately see what the valuation is. I'm talking about in trading updates and outlook statements. Um, anyway, Vino just gave EBITDA but it gets a, a cautious thumbs up for me now at, at Vino. Uh, I think it's it's starting to look it's quite an attractive little business, actually. It makes a reasonable profit margin, Virgin Wines. Um, I, yeah, I wouldn't rule that one out, but where's the growth going to come from? Very competitive sector. I've tried it out, tried the product. It's okay, nothing special. Same as all these wine uh, clubs. You know, you can, just, you, can just, you can just go online on any of the supermarket websites, look at the reviews, or just pick the ones you like. You know, I like um, Oyster Bay... Uh, Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay and there's a there's a one with a picture of a lizard on the front that I quite like and anything with one of those little gold medal uh, stickers on it at Asda I tend to buy as well and they're usually good so I'm an unsophisticated wine drinker as you can probably tell uh, but but these 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 wine club things I think have limited market size so I don't think they're massive growth stories particularly. But Vino looks looks an okay little business, fairly valued, I think. Or P is about eight or nine, 
which I think is probably about right, and its balance sheet's okay. So I quite like Vino. For Terra, I looked at this is a Bricks, uh, almost a mid cap. Uh, I, I, very nice value share. I think if if you think demand for bricks and the high margins it's currently making are sustainable, uh, lovely balance sheet as well. Obviously, very very capital intensive, uh, but it owns all its fixed assets. Everything's bought and paid for. They're not funded by debt. So I like Forterra. I haven't looked it into it in a huge amount of detail. I have to say. So this is only well, all these things really are just brief reviews. Um, Looks quite nice. Uh, the only question mark is obviously over energy costs. I would imagine making bricks must use a lot of energy. So it'd be interesting to, that's a key point to investigate, I would say, if you're looking into that share. They could have hedged their energy, I don't know, So, but it needs to be checked out. Right, on to Friday, when we're way over budget already. So Foxton's FOXT, Cockney Rebel likes this one. I went through the interims in quite a bit of detail, actually. I think they're quite good. I don't think there's actually that much that needs to be fixed here. But the idea is they've got a, 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 a hard-hitting um, new CEO coming in in September from Chesterton's, who apparently is a bit of a sort of brutal, hard-nosed bastard who's going <laughs> to strip out costs and unceremoniously uh, make the thing uh, more of a cash-making machine than a, than a lifestyle business, if it, if it is that already. Although it looks like the chairman is um, already doing plenty behind the scenes because they've talked about three million annualised cost savings already made. Let's hope that doesn't hit um, service levels, which have always been questionable in the past with Foxton's. got quite a chequered um, reputation, I would say, but that's going back a long time. It might be better now, I don't know. Um, it's turning more into a lettings business now, Foxton's is, which I think gives it a very nice recurring revenues. Uh, it looks a good business, probably priced about right for now, but I could see upside if uh, if the new CEO really um, shakes, shakes things up there. Music Magpie, MMAG, put out rubbish results, I thought. This, this one's no good. It's, again, similar to the other things that floated in the... Um, in, in the pandemic boom, profits have basically more or less disappeared. But what's intriguing is, it's very low margin business it's doing now, but what's intriguing is its banks have extended it, a new 30 million, three zero, uh, revolving credit facility, which really surprised me for the size of business and the fact that it's hardly making any profits at the moment. So the bank obviously sees something interesting there. So maybe I'm missing something. Maybe maybe Music Magpie is worth looking at. But I can't help feeling it. Need, it it's to me the current valuation is significantly too high. I wouldn't I wouldn't even vaguely be interested in buying this unless it halved in price again. Now, last two, what's that? I can't read my own writing. Oh, WIL, Wilmington. Uh, this is an interesting services business that's in the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, oh, the word escapes me. Um, compliance. Compliance and risk, which are really hot areas at the moment, aren't they, for all sorts of businesses, there's human resources and tribunals and all this diversity training and all these things now. It's an absolute can of worms. Um, so Wilmington provides subscription services uh, in that area. And one of the readers asked me to look at a... Anyway, it's putting out... Wilmington's putting out really good, uh, really good figures, actually. The share price has been very strong, but I think with good reason. I think it's worth it, um, and the valuation's still quite reasonable. So I like Wilmington. Again, I don't, I don't really hold any of these, actually, I don't think. 
personally. So I'm not talking my own book. I'm just giving an honest opinion on everything. Yeah, no, I don't own any of these stocks I've talked about today, so which is quite unusual. So um, Wilmington, yeah, WIL, worth a look. I think it's it's quite good. Uh, last one, uh, really, as a bit of a wild card, Aston Martin Lagonda, AML. Now, I've always had a soft spot for Aston Martins, and I had a D, I bought a DB7 in 2005, actually, when I first made some money from the market, which was a really extraordinary car with a 6-litre V12 and pretty uh, wobbly handling. <laughs> so each journey in that was a bit of an event. Um, I sold it, actually, after the Rosas uh, stopped me, having followed me for about 15 miles, going... Uh, um, rather briskly, shall we say, on the A34. And they just gave me the biggest bollocking of my life, basically, and I profusely apologised. And they, he just said, sell the car. He said, you're not safe in it. So uh, he, he let me off, escorted me back onto the, um, to the road, followed me for a few miles to make sure I stayed under 70, which I obviously did, although it was incredibly difficult in that car because the engine was barely ticking over. It had a top speed of 190. Not that I ever took it anything like that high. Um, and uh, I got home and I, I put the car on the market. I sold it. I thought, he's right. Um, anyway, Aston Martin. Sorry, that was one of my stories for my autobiography, if I ever do one. Uh, proper refinancing is being done. Now, the figures are terrible, interim, but it's not about the numbers of Aston Martin. My, I think there is potential speculative upside on this. The Saudis are cornerstoning a big new fundraising and so are Mercedes-Benz. So you've got two you know, uber deep-pocketed cornerstone backers there. Then there's going to be a 575 million rights issue. So there's going to be a lot of dilution. I'm not sure what price the rights issue is going to be at. But of course the rights issue is much better than a placing for existing holders. So uh, I think I'll, I'll look at it again when we've got the, 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 the updated share count, which will obviously increase the valuation well up into the one or two billion sort of level. Now, I compared it with Ferrari, um, Aston Martin, and Ferrari's valued at £42 billion, pounds, yet it's only four times the size of Aston Martin's revenues, about €4.8 billion, Euros, as opposed to Aston Martin's £1.2 billion. Pounds. Now, Aston Martin isn't viable at that scale. It's just a subscale business because the cost of developing these supercars or hypercars is hundreds of millions per model. And you can't recoup it if you're only selling £1.2 billion pounds of the cars every year. But if you look at Ferrari, it's transformational once a business scales up um, to that size where they're making eight, nine hundred, almost a billion a year profit, Ferrari are. And it's valued at 42 billion pounds so i think aston martin's two billion pounds market cap uh that could be quite interesting couldn't it if obviously the upside case it probably won't happen but you know if they really scale that business up which they might do with these new models and with the electric vehicles coming in over over i'm talking about over maybe a five ten year period um and the brand i mean the aston martin brand is just i mean that in itself must be worth multiple billions mustn't it so I think it's not a value share by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think AML, Aston Martin Lagonda, is something I might just buy a few as a long-term thing, uh, money I can afford to lose, and see what happens. 
Anyway, that's it. Sorry again, I've gone way over time, but there was just a lot of interesting stuff to cover. So, uh, all just opinions, never advice as usual. All my stuff is just my opinions. I'm quite often wrong, and I'm sometimes right, <laughs> because nobody can predict the future, can they? So uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, where things go from here. We're in f I think we're living in fascinating times. Anyway, and I think there are so many bargains out there. I'm absolutely salivating over the profits that I think we're going to make over a two or three year period. And several sort of quite senior, experienced, credible city figures that I've spoken to recently are saying the same thing. You know what? Sentiment's so on the floor and valuations of great companies are, in some cases, selectively, are really cheap now. If you take a two, three-year view, it's difficult to imagine that people buying now, having the guts to buy now, if they buy well and buy the right right companies, with good management, strong balance sheets that don't need to raise funding, I think we're going to do well from this point. But we can't rule out another big sell-off, can we? You know, it could be it could be chaos in the autumn if Putin turns off the gas to Europe you know, I just don't know what's going to happen, nor does anyone. So, yeah, I can also see the argument for keeping some powder dry. So, but look, it's your money, it's your choice. You, uh, everyone's got their own way of doing things, haven't they? And good luck to you, whatever you decide. Thanks a lot for listening, and I'll, uh, I'll see you in another week. Bye for now.